Hi, this is Anthony Tran from Marketing Access Pass, and you're listening to Joe Crane on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. Make your holiday purchases more rewarding with the Navy Federal Credit Union Cash Rewards Credit Card, where members earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase they make. Visit NavyFederal.org for more details and to apply. All right, today we're talking with Marine and Navy SEAL veteran. Don't think I've ever had one of those on the show. Mike Sorelli. Mike is CEO of EF Overwatch, um, working with Echelon Front. So, Mike, take us back. Tell us what you did in the Marine Corps. And then I'm really curious how the whole Navy SEAL thing came about after that. So, you know, I, the military attracted me for what reason? Um, I couldn't give you a, a solid answer. Probably Hollywood. Let's, let's be honest, uh, reading books and, um, hey, at least you admit it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't run in the blood. Uh, you know, yeah, my grandfather served in world war two, but guess what? So did everyone else's, uh, for the most part. So I met a force recon Marine and the guy just was like the consummate, like, just prototypical human. And I'm like, dude, I want to be like that guy. I've got to join that organization. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the one thing I remember about the Marine Corps is I did see when I was in high school, there's a poster and you probably remember this one where a drill instructor is right in the face of a, uh, recruit in boot camp and it says, we don't promise you a rose garden. Oh yeah. What organization can advertise something like that and never miss the recruiting, uh, quotas? There's something very special about the Marines. I, you know, even you know the Army, Air Force, Navy will 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 acknowledge that. So I, I joined uh, with the, the goal of becoming a recon Marine. I did scout sniper, and uh, you know this pre nine eleven, and, and after uh, a little bit of time, the Marine Corps said, "Hey, you know, have you thought about becoming an officer?" And all my fellow enlisted guys, my peers, were like, "Dude, go do it, go do it. If not, you're going to be sitting on a six month uh, arg." Uh, where we're not going to do a thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. So I submitted for a MESAP program, got selected as a corporal uh, very early in my career as a Marine yeah. and um, went off to Texas A&M uh, and, and finished my degree. Went to Marine OCS, uh, did very well at Marine OCS and, and just something was was picking away at me. And uh, I'm like, you know what? I worked with some Navy SEALs. Again, much like that Force Recon Marine, these guys impressed me. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I've heard it's the toughest military training. Uh, you know, part of me is not going to be fulfilled if I, if I don't give it a shot and find out if I have what it, uh, it takes. Wow. And so you, were you, were you actually in the MESET program and, and you switch, you ended up not becoming a Marine officer. You went Navy. Service transfer was the easiest process, uh, of, of many processes we had in the military to, to get, uh, to, to get approved. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got a, I got, I got a friend of mine, um, he was enlisted Marine and then he went to the MESEP and he was getting an electrical engineering degree and somebody pulled him aside and said, what are you going to do with a double E degree in the Marine Corps? And he ended up becoming a Navy nuke guy. Um, so not the first one I've known to switch out of the MESEP program, but, um, so, but going with the Navy SEAL. So I, I was asking before we started record, recording, 
did the Marine, did your Marine Corps training, your Marine Corps experiences, was that good preparation for Navy SEAL training? Preparation? Yeah. For basic underwater demolition school in the United States Marine Corps and the recon community. Absolutely. So one, from a leadership component, um, everything, they laid the foundation for me to be successful. It is the leadership foundation that the Marine Corps laid that has uh, helped me accelerate in, in life. The, the example I gave you was, you know, 2.9 GPA in high school. Uh, after three years um, out of high school in the Marine Corps, I go on to uh, I go on to Texas. Jordan, I'm on a podcast right now. <laughs> okay, so we'll have to... Uh, I think I'm going to leave that in. Guess. I think I'm going to leave yeah. it in. It'll be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so where, where do we leave off? Oh, yeah, yeah. So let me let me start over on that question. So the Marine Corps absolutely laid the, uh, the foundation for me to, uh, to be successful. Uh, it's that foundation that has still helped me accelerate today. Um, so... Um, one, you know, I graduated high school with a 2.9 GPA. Uh, when I graduated from uh, the MESA program, I had a 3.7. I didn't get smarter over those three years, uh, those four years. Uh, you know, I learned discipline. I learned commitment. And I learned how to lead and accomplish uh, tasks. And, you know, when I went to uh, basic underwater demolition school, you know, fresh off of, uh, you know, graduating uh, as an honor man out of Marine OCS, uh, people say, hey, well, you know, like, do you ever feel like you want to quit? I'm like, it wasn't, it wasn't even a, a choice. Uh, there was no way I was going to embarrass the Marine Corps, uh, yet alone the, uh, the reconnaissance community, which yeah. is a peer uh, of the SEAL community. And, and plus the commanding officer of basic underwater, underwater demolition school, who was a SEAL, was also a prior Marine back in the, uh, the 80s. And uh, he laid a little challenge of uh, pretty much don't embarrass the Marine Corps as well. <laughs> Do you find that, did you get actually targeted or, or preferential treatment or was it fair? You, you know what? It, it, it wasn't either, but uh, you got to remember I was discharged as a sergeant commissioned as an ensign and drove from Texas to, to San Diego, went right into training. So I still had a very sergeant like mentality sure. uh, about me and the, the guys, uh, the 250 students just gravitated towards me because I had credibility where none of them had prior military experience or if they did, it was in the Navy on a ship. Uh-huh. And the fact that I was a recon Marine, I was a sniper. I was already a combat diver. Um, and you know, to have the physical portion down, uh, the guys gravitated towards me. And so that's why I had a lot of fun in, uh, in SEAL training. That's awesome. Well, talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about some of the stuff you did. You actually ended up retiring from the Navy as a Navy SEAL officer. Um, just go through the real quick, how your career ended, uh, your retirement, and then if you want to segue into what your transition out of the Navy was like. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, went to the SEAL teams, served a uh, couple deployments uh, on the West Coast with SEAL Team 3, hit two battles during the, uh, the, uh, the Iraq War, the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, the Battle of Cyber City in 2008. Um, then went to become an instructor, the, the junior officer training course director, where I, I trained, uh, I was a line of professional development for the young officers before they checked in mm-hmm. uh, to SEAL teams. And while I was doing that, uh, I got an invitation to try out uh, for uh, a JSOC unit. Uh, went through that process, was successful, and then spent uh, the, the remainder of my career, for the most part, at JSOC. Total of, uh, you know, 
uh, 10 combat deployments, um, uh, 11 total deployments. And, uh, you know, when I was done, it was just, I, I was sort of spent. I just had gone so hard for so long without one single, like what you call, what do they call them? Uh, short tours. Yeah. Never had a short tour. Debil it to and, her, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it was, I, I timed everything correctly. I love going to combat, especially when you go to combat with guys who think there is nothing we can't do together um, in eradicating evil. There's a lot of purpose behind that. And that's why I think the transition is so hard. When you come from a tribe where there's this thing called a spree de corps, and you're never going to experience that in the private sector. Uh, that's hard for a lot of people to, uh, to, to, to deal with. Yeah. What, what year did you uh, come out of seal training? The first one? 2003. Uh, came out of the, uh, well, two, went in in 2003, came out of SEAL training in 2004 and direct to uh, SEAL Team 3. Yeah, so pretty much, yeah, you hit it just just right almost. <laughs> so, um, so talk about retiring out of the Navy as a SEAL 10, 11 combat deployments more or less. Um, very intense, incredible tribe community there. What were you thinking you might be wanting to do on the way out of the Navy? And how did any, any hint of entrepreneurship get into any of that? So, uh, you know, when veterans getting out tell me they, they know what they want to do, uh, you know, in the back of my head, it, I'm thinking you have no freaking clue what no, you, you want to don't. do. You don't. <laughs> You've got some assumptions. But so my last uh, tour in the Navy after my 11th uh, deployment was actually, I did pull one short tour, um, was at the university of Texas as a Naval ROTC instructor. But really mm. what it was, was I was getting my MBA and I was on my own program and have to go check in for, uh, you know, a drug test every uh, quarter. Um, and then after that, I, I realized I was done in the Navy. This is let me just uh, retire. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought I wanted to do three things. One private equity, venture capital or investment banking. Why would I think, uh, one of those three things would be a fit for me because I would go to these Navy SEAL foundation events and who are the rich donors there, private equity guys, venture capitalists, and investment bankers. So as I started my MBA program, um, naturally sort of started going down this finance track. And after the first semester, I'm like, what the hell am I thinking? I hate this. Yeah. Uh, and this is not me. I didn't do a personal inventory of my strengths, weaknesses, and passions. And when I thought about it, I'm like, what do I like? I really like getting that tough mission that nobody else can do and coming up with solutions and watching the value creation right in front of me. So I switched to entrepreneurship. And while I was in my MBA program, still active duty, I said, why not? Let's, let me start a nonprofit called Vended Foundation. Huffington Post, so my first venture was a social venture. Um, Huffington Post hailed it as potentially revolutionizing the way that veterans exit in the military. Great program. We ran one pilot program with 25 veterans. The metrics were through the roof would have blown away any program uh, in the United States, but ultimately it failed because we were going after VA certifications and I failed to understand the political landscape and we didn't get those, uh, those certifications. Mm-hmm. So I had to do the ultimate pivot and I took vetted the concept totally separate entity and started EF Overwatch, a for-profit version of vetted, uh, which is a specialized executive search firm. I, I like to say I only place military leaders which means usually it's the E7s to E9s, 03s and above that have substantial leadership billets under, mm-hmm. under their belt. Even then, I only take the top 10%. But uh, that has done substantially well 
Um, even though I was, you know, trying to, to, to give those same individuals away for free, companies weren't willing to donate. Now companies are more than willing to pay for that value exchange. Um, and if Overwatch really is, uh, it, it's unique to anything that's out there on the, uh, the market. We are not a volume play. We are very select white glove service uh, placements into very senior positions and companies from the CEO down to general manager positions. Wow. That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, Hey Mike, just hold that thought for a second. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. For over 30 years as a Navy federal member, I've been through just about every military and life event, deployments, home loans, car loans, credit cards, unexpected financial events. And I can say that Navy federal gets the military at Navy federal members of the mission. Make your holiday purchases more rewarding with the Navy Federal Credit Union Cash Rewards Credit Card, where members earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase they make. Your rewards won't expire while your account is open, and best of all, you can redeem them online or with the mobile app as soon as they're earned. Plus, Cash Rewards Card is contactless, meaning you can make payments quickly and securely with just the tap of your card. At Navy Federal, members of the mission. Visit NavyFederal.org for more details and to apply. Open to the armed forces, DOD, veterans, and their families. Message and data rates may apply. Insured by NCUA. All right, back talking with Marine and Navy SEAL veteran Mike Sorelli. So, um, Mike, you were talking about before the break, you started into the nonprofit world, and I can totally relate to that because I had similar experience when I was getting my master's in entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State and the business plan. I'm like, I'm going to do this nonprofit, speaking of heroes. And then I, something just hit, didn't hit me, you know, it didn't taste right. And I'm like, you know, I don't think I want to be in the world of nonprofit. I, I, I shifted over to the for-profit mentality and then the idea for the podcast came along and, and that's what I went with. So talk about what you, you basically had the pretty, very in, in execution, your nonprofit idea worked really well, that first group of 25 and everything, but there were some things that uh, didn't happen pro- quite right and you made that pivot to the for-profit so pick it up where you you know trailing off of the of the nonprofit mentality and going into the for-profit mentality so let me do a bottom up a line up front for the, uh, the veterans do not do not start a nonprofit. <laughs> and i've got vets that call me all the time from like the ut mccombs or the, the texas a and m maze uh, business school. Uh, in fact, I had a Marine Corps F-18 pilot, you know, he, he, I don't know how he found me, but some of his friends and him are going to start a nonprofit. I'm like, don't do it. Especially a veteran, a veteran nonprofit. I'm going to start another one of the 10,000 veteran nonprofits. I think it's even more than that. I think the last I heard is it's it's close to 40,000. And and I get it. When when people say nonprofit, that's your altruism coming that you want to do right by the veterans. I'll tell you how you're going to do more. You're going to have more impact on veterans is you start a for-profit and you grow that so that you can employ more veterans. So our society, our, our, our culture is based off a capitalistic society. It's the exchange uh, of value. And you should really be a capitalist at, at heart. I mean, we've basically defended capitalism with our lives in the military, the better half of our, our adult lives, uh, some longer than, uh, than others. But um, also there's something strange about the, the nonprofit world where I thought we were all in it together, it was very cutthroat. And um, there was a, I, I've never experienced more backstabbing 
um, than I have in the, uh, the nonprofit world. Yeah. Cause you're all competing uh, it, for the same donation dollars. It, it attracts a very unique type of character and yeah. I did not like it. So actually, uh, failing and I could have kept driving to, to, to bring that thing to, to success. But, um, by that point I was wore out by the, uh, the culture of nonprofits and the fact that there are a lot of nonprofits out there that are highly ineffective yet are great at fundraising. Um, and you know, every, uh, how many cents on the dollar actually go to services. Yeah, that's just it. That, that's the, that is the bad part of starting a nonprofit is you quickly realize you're not in the business of helping veterans. You're in the fundraising business. And so if you want, if you love fundraising, then start a nonprofit. If you love helping veterans, don't start a nonprofit. I mean, if you really want to work for a nonprofit, then just go work for one that already exists or raise your own money onto the side and then donate it to that nonprofit that you like. Yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a better way to get started at least. It is. Yeah. So, so talk about this shift to the for-profit and what, what did you end up doing and, and what was the difference in mentality? Oh, it's, it, I've never experienced such happiness outside of the, the SEAL teams in the Marine Corps. I mean, that will always uh, be my, my, you know, my primary joy, except I also met a woman uh, post-military that has absolutely changed my life and she's my rock. Um, and if I don't say that on this podcast, um, I'll, I'll suffer. I'm that was her that called earlier. Yeah, right? I, I love her. So <laughs> that was, uh, she was a little unhappy. So, um, no, 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 she's, she's my rock, but she supports me because I'm going to tell it to the veterans now. Um, I would rather deploy another 10 combat to another, I'd rather have another 10 combat deployments than start a business. Entrepreneurship is, is hard. This is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows, but the highs aren't a few weeks. It's almost like daily. And my emotions are all over the place. And I'm always wondering, am I going to make payroll? And a lot of sleepless nights in Afghanistan. If I knew we were going out the next night, I slept like a baby. Now I'm thinking about my business and I've got all my uh, angles uh, covered, but it is so much fun because entrepreneurship is you eat what you kill. And if you like to hunt, if you are innovative and you can adapt and you like to hunt, you're going to love this game called entrepreneurship. Now, it, now let me say this. Everyone thinks entrepreneurship is sexy. They do. But very few, only one out of a hundred are truly willing to put the effort and live the life to make their company succeed. I see it all the time. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. People dive in and they're not willing to put the work in and, no surprise, their companies fail within the first five years. Um, I think if I saw the last statistic, uh, most startups are not profitable until year five. Yeah. So if that doesn't show you right there, you may, as an owner of a company, you may not take a draw for five years. Are you willing? Are you willing to do that? And is your and family thing, willing? <laughs> yes. And the other thing I would say is we just talked about this during the break is that uh, you competed in a small business pitch competition and the two companies that won ahead of you already had people on their board of directors. That's the last thing I'm concerned about when I'm starting a a company's board of directors. I'm working, I'm worried about my business plan. I'm worried about my customers. If they're going to receive my idea, if it's, uh, it solves a pain point for them. But uh, all my buddies that were in entrepreneurship and then took outside investment 
their lives are miserable. I've built this thing off a small amount of money. I've got no debt. Um, I don't have outside investors. It is mine and my team's uh, company to take in whatever direction we want. But the second you take outside investors, things change the dynamic uh, of your company. Yes. I will, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I'll never take, cause I've got a few more ventures under my belt that I, I'm going to start. I, I, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but I'd be hard pressed to ever bring uh, investors uh, into uh, any of my companies. Yeah. Cause once that happens, you've basically created a boss and uh, you know, you're, you're owing money to people. So you're, you're on, you're on point for that. So I, I've often said that, and I was like way into this whole entrepreneurial thing after I got in the Marine Corps before I discovered this. But the the thing I, I the thing I missed the most about the Marine Corps was the military mindset. And the closest thing to the military mindset that I found in the civilian sector is the entrepreneur mindset. I mean, there there's these young 20, 21 year old kids that are way into entrepreneurship. They've never been in the military they have the same, that, that mind, they had that same mindset. Like I can get along with guys like that um, more so than, you know, even somebody my, my own age that isn't an entrepreneur. So talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial mindset and how that compares to the military mindset and some of the things you learned in your extensive military experience that helped you in entrepreneurship. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you say, you know, you surround yourself with some civilians that never served in the military, but have this mindset. I, I, I absolutely agree. You don't have to have served in the military to be my friend. I, I surround my, uh, surround myself with people with uh, like mindsets, right. but differing opinions, not people that think like me, differing opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, who are going to challenge the, uh, the status quo, which is, is the way I think. So I love how you said the military mindset, you know, if we just re- remove that word military, and we focus on the fact that it's just a mindset of victory. Jocko mm-hmm. talks about this well, yeah. in, in the book, Extreme Motorship. It, it has nothing to do with the military. The Marine Corps had a mindset of victories. The Marine Corps understood, just like every service in the military, that mindsets are everything and they drive your behaviors. Mm-hmm. So for an entrepreneur, you have to be, uh, you have to have this ability to emotionally detach. Because like I said, it is a constant up and down uh, of emotions. And so you have to be able to regulate Ultimately, the best advice somebody gave me about entrepreneurship is that uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you can really choose three things or no, 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 two things in life. Usually it's, it's fitness, it's uh, the business, which is assured and it's family. Uh, so you can only choose uh, two of those. The business already takes one of them. So what is it? Fitness or, uh, or, or family? You have to be able, one of the, the, the key attributes of a, um, there's a few of them. I'll, I'll cover a few, but the key one is resiliency, the ability to get knocked down and get back up and to learn why you got knocked down so that it never happens again. Mm-hmm. But uh, it will test your resiliency, your ability uh, to, to continually drive through obstacles because you're going to encounter nothing but obstacles. You have to innovate and adapt. Um, you know, we, we talk about pivot, which is a term common to uh, entrepreneurs you can't get emotionally attached to your product or service. It doesn't matter what you think the customer needs. What ultimately matters is what the customer needs, what in in their eyes, what they need. And if you need to pivot and you're too emotionally attached to your service or product, you're going to end up failing. It's, it's, it's understanding and innovating and adapting on a daily 
basis. But everything we learned in the military can create a great organization. We do this on the leadership consulting side because I'm part of the, uh, Jocko Willink and Mike Babin's uh, leadership consultancy called uh, Echelon Front is the tactics you learned in the military and how you run organizations. If you have the discipline to do what you do in the military and to run an organization, and most of my employees are, are, are young men and women fresh out of St. Edwards, which is a university here in, uh, in Austin. Um, none of them serve in the military, but we assimilated very quickly to how we do things from after actions to the lead back, which is how we confirm communication that we're crystal clear on what needs to get done and why we're doing the things that we're doing. We don't make as many mistakes as other companies do. Yeah. And that's what's been our hallmark to success. And lastly, extreme ownership. It's the root of what we, uh, what we believe and what we do. We are not victims. If something goes wrong, we look in the mirror and we blame ourselves, not others. Yeah. And you know, sometimes we, we think the military has, has an, has an ownership or, or a, uh, a stranglehold on, on leadership and it's not out in the civilian sector, which is just not true. The military spends more time and more money developing leaders because they realize leadership is the most important thing when it comes to military operations and being successful in, in the military. The military has the luxury of spending lots of time and money developing its people over many years. The civilian sector oftentimes doesn't have the money or the assets or the time to develop people as leaders. It likes to hire them, you know, when they're already there, bring them in at at that level. But leadership is leadership no matter where you go. It doesn't matter what language you speak. doesn't really matter. A high school kid or a college kid recognizes excellent leadership as quickly as anybody else does. And you don't have to be in the military to be a good leader. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, Talk about, can you talk a little bit about, how you, how you set the tone and the culture from your leadership in your organization? So let me write that down and set the tone in the culture. I, I will get back to that. Let me, let me push back on what you said. Um, first off, the military doesn't have the money or, or, or the time anymore than a, a company does. Uh, if, if you look at the number of, uh, of soldiers uh, to the number of people in the company, uh, the, the per capita cost for leadership development is probably pretty similar. Um, the military is the world's greatest leadership development program. And that is not recognized by a lot of our civilian counterparts. Mm-hmm. They refuse to. That's all we do in the military is it's one big leadership development program. And if you as a, a military leader are smart enough and dis- disciplined enough to take what the military taught you and put that into the private sector, you are going to be wildly successful. Now, does the you know U.S. companies not have the, the money or the time? Yeah, they do. They especially have the time. When I come in and work with companies on leadership development, I talk about the, the, the one tool, the after action process, the hot wash, the debrief, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of military leaders say, hey, Mike, that's great. But in the, in the military, you have the time to do that. And they tell them the story about in Afghanistan, how I operated off of four hours of sleep at night. Uh, and we go out on a raid at night, you know, we'd be, be out for eight hours, dehydrated, exhausted, just gotten in a firefight with, with Al-Qaeda or Taliban. And we'd get back at 8 a.m. in the morning. And as professionals, we would reload our magazines, uh, put our kit back together, make everything, uh, make sure everything was good to go because we knew we were going out the next night. And then we'd go to the team room and do a debrief. And if that debrief took two hours, even though we were exhausted, hungry, and tired, 
That's what we would do because that's the tools we knew we utilized. The internal process to accelerate our organization and develop our people. It's not that the private sector lacks money or time. It's that they don't know how to do it for the most part. And what MBA program talks about leadership development? What MBA program focuses on talent acquisition and talent management? Very few. And quite frankly, they don't have the expertise to, to, to teach those things. So, um, you know, how do you set the culture and how do you set the tone? One, you set that tone by living your actions. Uh, ben Horowitz just wrote a great book. It's not what you say, it's what you do. A leader sets the tone. If a leader says, this is what we do, then he or she reflects that in their day-to-day behaviors and they set the example for their people to follow. If you can't do that, you're like that father that says, do as I say, not as I do. That's how you set the tone. You, you, you explain what your culture is. You explain what your value are, your values are. You explain why those particular values are important to your organization. And the ultimate culture that any of us are trying to uh, uh, achieve is decentralized command. That's the ultimate form of culture you can ever hope to achieve. And again, Jocko Willink talks a lot that, uh, about that in his book. Also, General Stanley McChrystal and Chris Bussell talked about that in Team of Teams. Mm-hmm. Is that you train and develop your people so well that everyone is leading in every respective level of the organization. They're taking ownership and they're solving problems at their level. You're no longer needed to help people solve problems. And as a leader, when you achieve a decentralized culture that allows you to step back and make better strategic decisions for your organization. So um, it, it really is the fact that the private sector, they just need our assistance. And that's why, and, and I'm not trying to, 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 to sort of promote my company here, but if Overwatch, I want to turn it into the number one producer of chief talent officers. Is military leaders are perfect to step in and be the chief people officers and the chief talent officers of these organizations, to be the director, the head of leadership development and training so that uh, American companies accelerate their performance. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. So maybe it's more a lack of, like you said, they don't have the capability to infuse leadership throughout their entire organization. They might not have ever been exposed to that concept, like the, like what the military does and how it embraces it. And, you know, leadership training doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't really have to take a lot of time either. It just takes focus and intent. And yeah, to implement it and to cost the thing I remember about the Marine Corps was my whole career. It was, it was coming up every day. I mean, even here, young, even here, young Marines saying, you know, saying, Hey Marine, you know, you're leader of Marines at the Lance Corporal level, you know? And what's interesting is we've talked about this on the show for a long time. There's a guy I interviewed a long time ago. He, he talked about these two terms. There's, there's soft skills and there's hard skills. And there's oftentimes there's this great divide between veterans crossing over that divide into the civilian sector, getting hired at companies, even just going into regular jobs and stuff. Most companies hadn't figured it out. Most companies, and this goes hand in hand with the whole discussion we're having about leadership and why maybe it doesn't exist in a lot of organizations in the civilian sector. Um, It's because in the civilian sector, they tend to focus on those hard skills, which is like, your GPA, do you have an MBA, your Six Sigma, uh, are you a CPA, are you CFPA, you know, all these little letters and stuff after your name. They focused on those hard skills because they think, if I got somebody with all the hard skills, then that'll be a good person for this job. And they totally missed the whole soft skill thing. And 
oftentimes I talk with veterans all the time. They're like, well, I was a grunt, so I don't know if I can really get a job, you know, than being a security guard or whatever. I'm like, or, or even a Navy, or, or a Navy SEAL. And I'm like, I go, dude, you, you're missing the whole point, man. You have soft skills that most people could never have because of what you've done and, and your experiences. And all you got to do is get a civilian company to recognize the value in those soft skills. And you can get the hard skills later on. But it's those but, soft but, skills, those but, intangibles. But stop beating that, that horse. Um, you know, there's a lot of veterans that, that want to use that argument. But if I, deep, if, I, if I dive deep and go back and look at their military career, they weren't performers. They weren't yeah. high performers. Here's, here's the thing. Everyone talks about the Navy SEALs, and they, they paint all Navy SEALs in rainbow colors. <laughs> and I have to explain to them that's not, that's not the way it is. All talent follows a normal distribution. And all talent also follows a priceless law or power distribution where, uh, you know, some people call it the Pareto rule, where there's 10% over here, the top 10% produce most of the results for the, uh, the organization. Not all veterans are good. Right. They're not. Some right. vet- veterans, in, in terms of uh, the, I wouldn't hire into my organization. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the right military leader who invested into themselves and their career and their people and actually performed on the battlefield and drove results in, in, in the military are going to do exceptionally in, in, in the private sector for the veterans that were mediocre performers or low performers. If they can make a, uh, a severe, a severe mental sort of paradigm shift and, and recognize that they've got some weaknesses that they need to augment and improve on and, and, and apply them in a different way in the private sector. I, I, there's, there's a, there's a chance They'll, they'll, they'll do well. But if not, their, their performance in the military is going to mirror the performance in the, uh, the private sector. So the right veterans, yeah, they have exceptional soft skills. Now, the reason why most employers default to that surface level stuff like MBA or Lean Six Sigma or GPA is because that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. Because it's so objective. It's like a yes or no. Yeah. Do they have this? What was their, their GPA? Very few people. Again, you go back to leadership in the private sector, and I'm not saying leadership in the private sector. I've, I've met some of the, I call them uh, warriors within their respective professions. Mm-hmm. Bill Campbell is a perfect example. The trillion dollar coach from Silicon Valley, who I had the luxury to, to get to know, and he mentored uh, me a bit. Is that guy never served in the military, one of the most phenomenal leaders, yeah. could actually uh, probably run uh, McRaven or Gristle into the ground. Uh, he was that, that phenomenal. Yeah. So having respect for the private sector and those warriors within their respective professions, the best thing a veteran can do is stop listening to other veterans. Go find a private sector warrior who's been in the trenches for 20, 30 years, has a track record of, of yeah. failures, getting back up for them in a whole uh, long list uh, of successes as well. And if their values align, that's a mentor that you want. If they're good people, if they're character people, that's what you want. But a lot of employers don't dive into the soft side, the subjective because they don't know how to evaluate it. That's not their fault. They just do yeah. They've never received it. It is the very training. subjective. The military, yes, the military is designed off of potential, potential-based hiring. That's how we hire. Because mm-hmm. you can't hire people. Uh, there's very few that have prior military experience uh, before get, coming into uh, to the special operations community. That's why we, we, we become so good at diving into attributes and assessing people's character as a means to uh, hire them into our respective uh, military communities. Yeah. So in regards to EF Overwatch, you're putting, you're putting these high quality military leaders into you know, executive level type jobs, more or less. So there's two sides, there's two sides of that coin, finding the right quality military leaders coming out of the military. 
which is, I, well, I was going to say, which is probably the easy part, but I, but I don't know that for sure. So here's my question. What is the easy part? Connecting with the civilian companies looking for these kinds of folks or finding the guys coming out of the military and, run, and running them through your process? The, the, the easier part, I'll put it to you that way, it's still not easy because we've got to run assessments. The easier part is finding the great leaders coming out of the military because it's very easy to, to you know, I've got a group of special forces. I actually place more special forces than I do Navy SEALs, drastically more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but now I've built uh, relationships where I can call a former Green Beret and say, hey, do you know this guy? What's, what's his opinion? Or do you know somebody that knows them or worked with them? So it's very easy for us to get reference checks from people that we trust. So it's easier because that's part, where your network is. Yeah. Yes. The harder part is finding the right clients. And that's where EF Overwatch differentiates itself. I focus, and this was sort of a hypothesis, you know, it wasn't based off data. I focus on the small to mid-sized businesses, which we know is the backbone of the American economy. Mm-hmm. Veterans are conditioned when they get out because all they see is Google and IBM and Goldman Sachs and, uh, and, and Amazon. So they've got to go work for a fortune 500 mm-hmm. best of luck. You're going to be a number. I, I avoided it like the plague. And that's what I really learned from my MBA is I wanted no part of the fortune 500s and it, 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 the leadership is it, not like the, uh, the military. What I found is that small to mid-sized business leader, uh, businesses are run by like people that roll their sleeves up, Sometimes they're blue collar companies with a white collar intellect. Uh, they're good people and they value leadership more than they value uh, industry experience. And that's why we've been so successful with our placements. But before I accept a company as a client, I have to hear it from the CEO or the president of the company or the owner of the company. And I have to hear them say these exact words. I value leadership over industry experience. I can teach them what they need to know in this industry. Find me somebody of character. And if I hear that, that is a client we'll take on board. So we are as selective of our clients as we are as uh, of our candidates. Yeah. I think sometimes in the civilian sector, you know, it's all about the bottom line and, and, and making, you know, the profit and loss. And so they, they want somebody that's got the specific industry experience because they think that's, what's going to push the bottom line. I need somebody that knows and understands that. Um, Guys, what you said, I need somebody that, that will value leadership over industry experience. Have you found a common theme in those folks that get that? Like, is it, I've had guys with no industry experience before who had phenomenal leadership. So now I get it. Like, is that usually why, or do they have a, a, a different, a different viewpoint or philosophy on life? Like what's been your experience with finding those leaders of small and mid-sized companies that have that mentality? the leaders, again, the right leaders that have that mentality understand that mindset and attitude on everything. That's the, that's the, the final determinant uh, of success. Mm-hmm. Um, not whether you're the best accountant, not whether you're the best marketer, it's the mindset and attitude. Um, now, we, you know, the military realized this long ago, you know, before you can try out for army special forces back in the day, you had to have, you know, some, some prior military experience in some other community before you could submit a package to, to try out. Well, what they found is that prior military experience was not an indicator uh, of success in the special forces community. Hence why they created the 18 X-ray program, much like the SEALs do, mm-hmm. where they'll take kids out of high school. They'll take kids fresh out of college without any military experience whatsoever. The, 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 the character, the attributes, the nine, and we created nine foundational attributes in our book that comes out on the Marine Corps birthday, November 10th. Wow. Um, those are the keys to success. Not whether you had five years of, of marketing. <laughs> and data shows that 
What's your book? Tell us about your book. The book is The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent. This is George Randall, and I wrote it with a guy named Dr. Josh Totten. Uh, George was an Army Mustang, um, and Dr. Totten worked with the Navy SEALs on how they assess and select, as well as the Special Forces community, mm-hmm. people into their respective communities. And so we were, were, one, so passionate about this subject of hiring and the fact that a lot of businesses just don't do it well. And we understand we're, we're not like saying, hey, you guys suck. No, when a CEO is so focused on driving growth and revenue, people often come in as a secondary or tertiary uh, priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, it falls low on the priority list. And again, there, a lot of them have MBAs, but they never took a class on how to hire because no class exists in an MBA program. <laughs> and so what we did was we took the blueprint, which is the the most, the longest behavioral interview, the most robust interview process of any organization in the world, special operations. And we took that transferable blueprint and laid it out in a way that businesses can adopt the best practices and start to change how they hire talent into their organizations. Um, and so far, the feedback that we've gotten from business leaders, we sent out a few pre-release books, is they're like, this is phenomenal this will become the playbook or a must read for every CEO, CEO, CHRO and and executives in business as well as HR, uh, you know, personnel is it's going to change the game, how companies hire. That's awesome. Yeah. Look forward, look forward to reading it. Now, why does the term talent war, which is the title of your book, why does that sound familiar? Has it, is that, is there something else out there with the same name or has this been around for a little while? it's been around, you'll, you'll hear the war for talent. You'll hear the talent war. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, back in 1997, uh, three McKinsey consultants, uh, coined the term, uh, war for talent. Um, it, it was going on well before that. Um, it's going on today, even though they coined that term in 1997, th- that war for talent is raging. And guess what? It never ends. Yeah. The military services, the services are competing for talent. Um, you know, there's a poll of, something like 1,400 CEOs and other C-suite executives in 2019. And the poll was, what's your top concern? Without a doubt amongst the, uh, the, the CEOs and C-suite executives, it was attracting, hiring, developing, and retaining top talent. That's their number one concern because it's your people. Your people are your most important asset in everything, everything you do. That's your only competitive uh, strategic advantage. It is your people that seize opportunities. It's your people that solve problems. It's your people that commercialize your products or your services. It's not the technology. It's not your systems. It's people. And that's why it's so important. It's just, there's no playbooks for executives uh, to follow. And that's why we wrote this. Hopefully we can, we can help them educate and, and learn and evolve in how they, they treat their talent. It's awesome. All right. So the talent war launches on November 10th through, uh, um, Look forward to seeing that out there and a big Amazon launch. I'm sure when you launch a book, are you expecting most of your, most of your sales coming from Amazon typically, or at least in the beginning? Is that. You know, what sucks is even though we've been in pre-sales for, for uh, about a month and a half, we can't see any of the data until the day it launches. So (laughs) the only indicators that we had, we've had success is that it's a number one new release in several categories like business consulting and HR and personnel management. And it also hit bestseller on Amazon and business consulting for, uh, for about a week. So in pre-release, um, wow, that's awesome. In pre-release. So we, we think that's, that's a good trend, but you know, I, I never try to uh, look too deeply into things cause I'm usually wrong. 
All right. Well, hey, Mike, um, phenomenal story. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I do want to give you the last word. Um, usually I ask uh, if you know somebody in the military that's about to get out or going through a transition right now and they wanted to go into entrepreneurship, what advice would you have for them? Uh, definitely if you have a, another decision maker in the home, if that's whether a husband or a wife, sit down with them talk about the pros and the cons. And if this is something that you're, uh, you know, really ready to do and just prepare, prepare because it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever endured, but it's the most rewarding thing if you can pull it off to work for yourself and have a team. That's like being a Marine Sergeant again, to have a team of 12, your squad, and you get the, 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 uh, the opportunity to develop them and determine, you know, your future and your path then it is a goal worth achieving, but it is going to take a whole hell of a lot of work. Awesome. Well, Hey Mike, thanks for being here telling your story. We look forward to your future success and I look forward to that book launch and uh, see you on the New York times bestseller list, right? That's the, that's the granddaddy of them all, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, good luck to you and uh Semper Fi. It's always good to have a Marine on and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right, brother. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.